Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's also about the shared meal times, the healthy food, the respect for the baby, allowing the baby to decide how quickly to eat, how much to eat, and so on. It embraces so much more than just a method of feeding. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning. Hello and welcome back. This is part two of my interview with Jill Rapley, the founding philosopher of the baby-led weaning movement and co-author of the Baby-Led Weaning Essential Guidebook. Now, if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, that was episode number 100, and Jill shared all about how she essentially made baby-led weaning into a thing. She doesn't claim to have invented the idea of babies feeding themselves, but she certainly is responsible for making it a thing. So Jill is talking about her book in that episode. She's talking all about the initial pushback that she got when she started writing and speaking and teaching about baby-led weaning. That was episode 100. In this episode, Jill is going to be talking about where she sees baby-led weaning going in the future. We're going to dive into the topics of social media, touching on how it, yes, has helped advance the movement, but also how Jill deals with a lot of the darker areas of social media and baby-led weaning, the judginess and the clickiness, and how does she respond when people define baby-led weaning in a way that is not true to her original intent. At the end of the day, what I hope you'll take away from this second part of my interview with Jill Rapley is how important it is not to focus on all the things your baby can't do or can't eat. Instead, she's encouraging and reminding us to reframe the conversation and our approach to starting solid food so that we're really zoning in on all of the things our babies can do to feed themselves and also all of the foods out there that they can eat safely. So with no further ado, I want to bring Jill Rapley back on to talk about the future of baby led weaning. Jill, welcome back. Thank you again for joining us for part two of our conversation about the history of baby led weaning. And now we're going to look at the future of baby led weaning. I'm really delighted to be back. Thank you. Now, there are many inaccurate perceptions of baby led weaning. I don't need to tell you that. A lot of times there are individuals or even groups who, of course, don't entirely understand childhood growth and development and nutrition. And I was just curious, how do you think that credentialed practitioners can be more involved in responsibly promoting baby led weaning in today's current feeding environment? Well, I think they themselves need to be open-minded and willing to perhaps unlearn some of the kind of givens that they've grown up with. So, for example, the idea that you have to start 
by introducing a spoon when actually maybe that could be a bit later. If they themselves learn about baby-led weaning and see it in action and get it, then they're going to be much more able to share that with parents and move things forward. They also need to listen to parents who are doing it and understand what actually is happening. There are many people many professionals as well as parents, but particularly professionals who are under the impression that baby led weaning is something a bit new. And actually, if they would just ask some of their clients who are parents of, say, three or more children, they would find that actually it's been going on forever. But it hasn't been talked about. As I think I mentioned in our previous discussion, it didn't have a name before. The other thing that I think is really important for professionals is to check the influence over their work and their thinking from the baby food industry. The baby food industry has a big interest in dismissing baby led weaning effectively because if parents are not going to buy jars and pouches of pureed foods, then that's going to impact on the whole commercial aspect of their work. We know from work around breastfeeding that sadly many professionals are influenced by industry and it affects the way they understand things and the suggestions and advice that they give to parents. So we really do need to take stock of what our relationship is with the manufacturers and distributors of baby foods. And that's such a wonderful point because we get our information from so many different sources, from our families, from books that we read, from social media, as well as credential professionals. But you make such an important point that we also are influenced by the baby food industry. And I know in many parts of the world, it's similar, but you go to the store and there's an aisle full of foods that are essentially, well, A, they weren't around 100 years ago. B, they're entirely fabricated. You, no one would describe them as natural with added sugars and added salts. And the one that kills me in the baby food aisle in the US, at least, are the shelf-stable yogurt products. Like, think about that. You buy yogurt out of a refrigerated section of a grocery store if it has live active cultures in it. The other day I was at a store, a small four-ounce portion had six grams, so a teaspoon and a half of added sugar in a product that was marketed as a baby yogurt sitting on the shelf. Like it was the farthest removed thing from real food. And yet, as you point out, there are billions of dollars surrounding the influence and in trying to make us think that this is a product that's needed. Yes, we could do with much tighter legislation around these things as well, but that's going to be a while coming, I fear. Well, one thing that I love personally about working in the field of infant feeding is all of the different disciplines that I get to interact with who all play important roles in helping our kids get a safe start to solid food. So I'm talking about pediatricians and speech language pathologists, occupational therapists. We have other dietitians and child development specialists. I wanted to know if you might share your thoughts when we were talking about the different healthcare disciplines, like who currently are involved in baby led weaning, but any thoughts on who you'd like to see more involved in baby led weaning moving forward? Well, as you say, there are already quite a lot of disciplines that are interested in this. I guess the kind of first adopters were the breastfeeding community, lactation consultants, breastfeeding counsellors, and professionals who knew a lot about breastfeeding. But it's exciting to me to discover how many disciplines have something in common in terms of feeding babies. I wish I had understood that much earlier. I don't think I realized that uh, so many other professionals might be interested before I even came up with baby led weaning. I mean, I was particularly thrilled when I was approached by orthodontists because they see a relevance for babies chewing from earlier than they would if they were started on pureed foods. And that really helping to influence the way the jaw develops, the shape of the face and how well the teeth fit later. 
especially those orthodontists who practice orthotropics, which is quite an, a new part of that discipline. So to get a, a email out of the blue from an orthodontist was amazing to me. It's so relevant, so important. So as well as the professionals that you mentioned, it extends to health visitors, midwives, public health nurses, pediatric nurses should have an interest, child psychologists even, physiotherapists. There are just so many that may be involved. We don't have orofacial myologists much in the UK, but um, they've contacted me from other countries and awful lot to offer and to understand. And I think an awful lot of the research to date has been around the food itself. So it's tended to sit in the region of pediatrics and dietetics or nutrition. But it's so much broader than that. Any health professional who ever discusses the feeding of babies or toddlers could do with engaging with baby-led weaning. And I find that for so many therapists, unfortunately, therapy often seems to start from a position of what the baby can't do. But I'm finding an increasing interest among, let's say, for example, speech and language therapists who are excited by baby-led weaning because it starts from a position of what the baby can do and then builds on that. In the past, people have said to me, surely baby-led weaning is contraindicated for some children, babies with developmental delay, for example. And I hate that word contraindicated. Absolutely not. It just needs to be adapted. It's not appropriate to just offer a child food and leave them to get on with it if they clearly aren't capable of feeding themselves. I wouldn't ever suggest that. But if we start from what they can do and build on that, then the world can open up to them so much more. I have a, a good friend, colleague, who is the speech and language therapist, who uses baby-led weaning a lot with babies with Down syndrome. And she finds it amazing. She said it helps with so many areas of their development. It brings them out of themselves, gets them to engage. It uh, helps with their core strength. It helps with their dexterity. It's not just about getting them to eat. It's about the, all of the aspects of their development. And you mentioned that oftentimes, it's not all, but there are certainly a subset of the therapy world that does start at the position of what a baby can't do. And I would say that from my side as a dietitian in nutrition, so many dietitians are trained to think about all the things that a baby can't eat. But instead, if we can look at if all the many foods out there that babies can eat, it kind of dovetails on what you were saying, that, that is opens up a world of possibilities for babies of all different abilities. And I myself have moved away from using any language about contraindication or who is baby-led weaning not for. To be honest, at this point, I'm hard-pressed to find a population that it doesn't work for. It's more often than not the parents or the pediatricians that it doesn't work for, but the baby themselves certainly has the ability to learn how to do this. But you're right, it does need to be adapted at times. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I think that's the really interesting point that it's often the parents or, or, or the health professional for whom it doesn't work, but for babies it works, yes. Parents and professionals have to be prepared to let go and give that control to the baby and to show that baby respect, and then the baby can take it from there. But that's the tricky bit. So, parents who struggle with baby led weaning, it's nearly always difficult for them for whatever reason, not actually for their baby. Mm -hmm. 
And you mentioned the role of dietetics and nutrition, and so often the focus is on the food. Like parents go to that six-month appointment and they start talking about iron maybe. But I know personally when I was studying to be a dietitian over 20 years ago, there was no talk of infants knowing how to self-feed or parents and caregivers like that they even needed to be involved in the baby learning how to self-feed. And to be honest, now as a college nutrition professor myself, I'm still disheartened by the outdated and really narrow-minded approach to traditional infant feeding curriculum that we teach our future providers. So I wanted to ask you how we can help current and future practitioners understand that baby-led weaning is a safe and viable alternative to traditional spoon feeding because they're not getting it in medical or nutrition education. And more importantly, though, how did like the practitioners talk to their parents and their patients? Like, How can we give them the confidence that babies can do this? Because if they don't hear it from their practitioners and they don't hear it from you, they might never hear this message. I don't really have an easy answer to that. But I think we need to be sure if we are teachers that, uh, and I do do some university lecturing myself, make sure that the curriculum covers it, make sure that the curriculum is broad enough to look at all aspects of feeding and perhaps encourage students to deconstruct feeding and eating and try and see it from the baby's point of view. My doctoral research was very much about examining what the feeding experience is like for the baby as far as I possibly could without being able to interview babies, of course. But seeing how they respond to food presented to them for them to explore as opposed to food presented on a spoon, there were just huge differences. This was just massive. And it immediately made me wonder, we we have an awful lot of research about how babies develop food preferences. And depending on what study you read, they will tell you you have to introduce new food to a baby eight times or 15 times or whatever before he will accept it. I really struggle with that word, accept. Where's the enjoyment in that? It's still so much of the language in the research is around um, getting babies to comply with what the adults want and assuming that babies don't want to eat. I mentioned before when we were talking in our previous interview about the idea that we have to make eating fun. We have to just stop making it miserable. (laughs) Babies will eat. They want to. But we also have to understand that their motivation for starting with solid food is probably nothing to do with hunger. It's to do with exploring their world and testing things out with their mouth and with all of their senses. And they discover by chance that this stuff tastes good, fills their tummy, whatever. But that's not their initial motivation. And all the time we make it about food itself, and then I think we're missing part of the way that we can understand babies. As someone who really struggled myself with traditional spoon feeding with my oldest, I have to admit I was super skeptical about a baby's ability to self-feed when I went to start solids with my next babies who happened to be quadruplets. But for me, at least, and I know a lot of other parents, it's true, seeing really was believing. And I think that visual aspect is so important for getting people on board with baby led weaning. And a lot of the visual ability to see this has happened through social media. So I was interested in your opinions on how you think social media has helped advance the baby led weaning movement. Well, it has helped enormously. And partly, as you say, because it's allowed people to upload videos and images of food and images of their babies eating and enjoying food that has inspired others and helped them to understand it. I'm still not sure there's really a substitute for seeing it in real life with a baby, but a video is a very close second. But also, from very early on, the forums that built up around baby led weaning and Facebook groups, for example, have supported parents 
in being brave enough to do something which other people were skeptical about and to stick their neck out and do something that, that wasn't seen as the normal thing to do. So I think that has been another huge impact of social media. So it's also been meant parents can share discussions about, for example, how do I deal with my mother or my mother-in-law who is uncertain about this and give each other suggestions and ways to handle it. And certainly the rapid spread of baby-led weaning would not have been possible without social media. That's how it's spread by just like wildfire. Yeah, it's been amazing. And I think especially that notion of support and community, I see that so much in my own audience. We're recording this nine months into a global pandemic. So many parents feeling very isolated. I feel like I'm the only one doing this. And then to have this community in a Facebook group or on an Instagram live or in a private course where you have the opportunity to interact with other like-minded parents who believe it's possible, but also just a place to kind of bounce ideas back and forth. Hey, I'm struggling with this. To not feel like you're the only one doing that. I think social media has been so wonderful for that. But I know while we're on the topic of social media, I wonder if you could just speak to the unfortunate reality that baby-led weaning has gotten to some degree a reputation as being judgmental or a clicky movement. How has social media played into that negative side of promoting or bringing attention to baby-led weaning? Well, I guess you have to have some bad with some good. So there's bound to be a, a downside to social media. I think baby-led weaning, because it's something that appeared to be new and that's a bit radical, it's become a bit niche in some places. So it's a bit like baby wearing and co-sleeping. It's kind of seen as something rather extreme. But at least we can have a dialogue now, and that's really important because we can discuss it. What saddens me is when parents are slapped down for not being purist, for example, about baby-led weaning, for not um, obeying it to the letter, if you like. If you ever give a spoon, you can't be a member of our group. That's very sad to me. But I often get asked about how I feel about how purist one should be. And I think it's tricky for me to answer that because if I'm not purist, then who on earth is going to be? I have to be because I first wrote about this thing. And it's very important to me that we do have a clear definition of what baby-led weaning is, because if we don't, then someone will hear it from someone who heard it from someone else, and it becomes distorted. In fact, that was the first, the main reason that I got together with Tracy to write our first book, was to document what actually this phenomenon, this philosophy was, if you like, because it was already becoming distorted. And if somebody thinks they're doing baby-led weaning, but they're not, then they will miss out on the benefits of it, potentially. Plus, when it comes to research, and we do want to have more research into this, the definition is, is hugely important. It's just as important as, for example, defining what exclusive breastfeeding means in terms of research. If you don't define these things, then you can't be sure that the outcomes you're seeing are true, and, and a lot of the outcomes will be masked if we're not actually observing the thing in its purest form. So it's really important to me to have that distinction. But that is completely different from saying what an individual parent should or shouldn't do with their own baby. In other words, I suppose if you break it down into its simplest form, it's it's not about what you do. That is entirely up to you, but it's what you call it. I'd really prefer if it wasn't called baby-led weaning, if it isn't quite baby-led weaning. A lot of parents, for example, nowadays talk about doing a bit of both. And a lot of writers in the field of infant feeding who previously didn't talk about baby-led weaning and are perhaps now embracing it often talk about doing a bit of both. But you can't do a bit of both because you mentioned you introduced me as the philosopher of baby-led weaning, if you like. I certainly think of it as a, 
yeah, philosophy, why not? It's not a method of feeding, certainly. A method of feeding would be spoon feeding or self-feeding. encompasses that, but it's also about the shared meal times, the healthy food, the respect for the baby, the allowing the baby to decide how quickly to eat, how much to eat, and so on. So it embraces so much more than just a method of feeding. And so to do a bit of both, yes, you can do a bit of spoon feeding and a bit of self-feeding, but that is not baby-led weaning because it's missing out all the other elements. Put it another way, you can't combine two approaches. You can't combine trusting your baby with not trusting your baby. You can't trust them at the beginning of the meal and then give them some spoonfuls at the end to make sure they've had enough because you're not then actually believing that they know their own appetite. You can't trust them one day and not the next day. An approach which involves respect and trust for the baby is very different from one in which the parent controls what's going on. So yes, by all means, do a combination of methods, but you can't do a combination of approaches. The other thing to say about the internet, I'm often asked why I don't intervene on Facebook groups and other forums when things are being discussed that perhaps are not appropriate or that I wouldn't agree with. And the simple answer is I can't possibly police all of those groups, even if I wanted to. I don't speak enough languages. It's all over the world now. It's quite out of hand. <laughs> I can't keep up with it. But also, I don't want to stifle uh, debate and discussion. Even if I could, I don't want to try and own it all and stamp down any useful dialogue. So I don't see it as my place. Instead, I try to make sure that what I say is clear and that what is put out from me in presentations and on my websites is plain to understand and easy to grasp so that people can come back to fact check things with me if they're uncertain. If Jill Rapley of 20 years ago was talking to Jill Rapley of today. What do you think would surprise you the most about how the baby led weaning movement and philosophy has evolved? I think I would be amazed at the huge spread and uptake there's been. I never really stopped to think about where I hope. Well, I kind of guess I hoped it would revolutionize the world. But um, in practical terms, what that means about people talking about baby led weaning, people who've never heard of me, and that's really exciting. I never would have imagined that the books that Tracy and I have written would be translated into over 20 languages already. I wouldn't have believed that baby led weaning would be accepted into the Oxford English Dictionary, which happened a couple of years ago. And for myself, I wouldn't have imagined having this wonderful friendship and working relationship with Tracy Merkitt, which has just been so liberating. And I wouldn't have imagined the travel possibilities that would open for me personally. I'm so blessed and so lucky to have been invited to speak in so many different countries. I've been, well, to loads, but uh, for example, as far flung as Canada, the US, South America, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, European countries, Romania, Slovenia, just been incredible. And uh, I feel so very lucky to just come up with something at the right time when it resonated with enough people to take off on its own. It's almost like it's my baby and it's out into the world. In fact, it is now actually 19 years old, I guess, since I first spoke about it. So it really has come of age and it seems to be here to stay. And I'm absolutely thrilled by that. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better 
and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And what are your hopes for the baby-led weaning approach to feeding in the next 10 or 20 years? Like, what would you like to see happen in the future as far as BLW is concerned for healthcare providers, researchers, parents? What's your hope for the next decades? I'd like to see more research properly conducted into the potential outcomes of baby-led weaning. We do need to know what it might signify for babies because I think there's the possibility that it could have huge ramifications. So, for example, as I mentioned in our understanding of development of food preferences, we have all this research about how many times you have to offer food to a baby before they will accept it. But that's when you offer it pureed on a spoon. That's what all that research seems to relate to. It can be a completely different matter if you offer that food as a piece for the baby to pick up and explore. Certainly my PhD work showed that babies had a completely different response if it was offered to them in a different way. So what we think of as our knowledge about how babies engage with food needs to be thrown up in the air and, and looked at again because we've done it all with a backdrop of spoon feeding. If we take that out of the equation, how different might it be? This goes back to my very early thoughts as a health visitor was that when babies were refusing food, it wasn't the food, it was the feeding they didn't like. And and I think we need to look at all of the literature that we have in the light of that and perhaps redo some of that uh, research. We need to know, it would be great to know if babies can actually choose the right nutrients to eat. There was a very old piece of research by Dr. Clara Davis, which has really been the only thing uh, that has looked at that. And it, it needs repeating because it was flawed. But there is every reason to believe that it may be the case that when presented with an array of foods, babies can decide what they need in terms of what nutrients. For example, many parents tell me that their babies naturally gravitate towards meat and eggs when they first start solid feeding at around six months. And that fits entirely with the first nutrients they're likely to need being zinc and iron. It would be good to know if baby led weaning really does have a role to play in the reduction of obesity and in developing dexterity, hand-eye coordination, speech and language. Maybe that's important. And then the facial growth and the development of teeth and the possible need or not for orthodontics later, it may have a role there. I think we need to know more about choking and to really understand how handling food is important in the prevention of choking because it it tells the baby how the food's going to behave in his mouth. I've also heard anecdotally from parents that when they follow baby-led weaning, as a toddler, their baby, their child doesn't seem interested in putting stones and marbles and Lego bricks in his or her mouth. It's almost as if they've been there, done that. And we have to recognize that choking happens often on toys and, and little things like that. So I think there's more we need to understand about the mechanisms of choking and how much actually the practice that babies get with baby-led weaning is beneficial. Another point that we perhaps overlook is what a slow start so many babies make with baby-led weaning. This is absolutely ideal for them developing the oral skills they need. Very different to having something put in your mouth for you and then having to deal with it. Similarly, I think we could do a lot more understanding about how allergies develop. One of the things that's clear from baby head weaning is, again, this slow start that a baby will start by picking food up, looking at it, sniffing it, tasting it before they ever ingest it. And I've, again, had anecdotal stories from parents about babies who consistently refused certain foods only to discover later that they were allergic to them. Probably the most 
amazing story in that category was one given to me by a mum in the States when I was speaking over there. Her 15-year-old son had an anaphylactic reaction to tree nuts, which in fact it turned out he'd been allergic to all his life, but it wasn't discovered until he was age 15. And he commented after he was recovered from the episode that he really shouldn't have eaten the cookie that was offered to him because it didn't smell right. And his mum reflected that he'd actually always sniffed his food before eating it since he was really tiny. And it seems that he was detecting something in the food. He didn't know what it was. His parents had no idea what was going on, but he was keeping himself safe from this thing that he was clearly allergic to. And his mum was amazed at actually his ability to keep himself safe for all those years. And as I said to her, but it wasn't just him, was it? You never forced him to eat anything that he didn't want to eat. And I think that's huge. We should respect babies much more. So I think there's work to be done there as well. The other big thing I would love to see re-looked at is how babies' oral skills develop and in what order. Is it normal for learning to clear a spoon with your lips to happen early and before a baby's really got to grips with chewing? I suspect these things might happen in an opposite order. We have this idea, too, that purees are easy to eat, and yet I know of some research which is suggesting that may not be the case at all. Certainly, if you or I were to try and chew a puree, we would actually find that really quite difficult. It would sort of splurge all over the inside of our mouth and be very difficult to gather together. But we have this idea that babies must move through very liquid purees to gradually thicker purees and so on to food with with a, a more recognizable texture in order to be able to cope with it. But actually drinking and chewing are very different mechanisms. Babies are born knowing how to drink and then they become able to chew from around about six months. But they're using very different muscles and different skills to do that. It's quite possible, I think, that pureeing is actually muddying the waters and causing more problems than it solves by making it difficult for babies to adapt the skill, to find the skills that they really need for each texture. So, for example, when we first start feeding quite runny purees to babies, essentially they're just swallowing it much like a liquid. And way back when I was first health visiting, I found that a lot of babies ran into problems that are around about eight months old when their mothers started to introduce purees with lumps in, essentially what we call back then second stage dinners, because they were trying to, or it seemed to me, they were trying to swallow them like a liquid and the lumps were catching in their throat. I've often compared how we would swallow a thick tomato soup as adults, how we would sort of slurp it in, with how we would tackle a bowl full of muesli. You wouldn't use the same technique. And I think Possibly purees have been encouraging babies to use a technique that is not appropriate for more solid foods, and that's why they've been getting into trouble. If we could separate the liquids from the solids more obviously and let babies tackle them differently, perhaps they would get on better, and perhaps the skills that we observe would appear in a different order or at a different rate. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the textbooks around the development of oral skills, again, have been written with a backdrop of spoon feeding. And we need to take that out of the equation and look at how those how skills develop without that there and see 
really what babies are capable of. And I would argue that the textbooks in nutrition have also been written, certainly with the backdrop of spoon feeding, with the assumption that everything needs to be iron fortified, which assumes essentially that babies cannot learn how to eat foods that are naturally good sources of iron and zinc and other important nutrients, which, by the way, they've been doing for millennia prior to the advent of commercial baby foods. So I can echo what you're saying from the developmental side, that nutrition certainly needs those same updates. Yep, I think we're uh, on the same page there. Thank you for sharing this with my audience. I can't thank you enough. Well, guys, that was the second part of my two-part interview with Jill Rapley talking about her take on the future of baby led weaning. If you didn't catch the first part, it's episode number 100. We talked about the history of baby led weaning with Jill Rapley. This was the future. And I love that she was willing to talk about the social media aspect of baby led weaning. We did a lot of back and forth before these episodes, and I didn't want to be rude and be like, how do you feel about really super judgy Facebook groups that totally misinterpret your original intention of baby led weaning? She's the one that brought it up. Like, no, ask me about it. So I like to remind parents that when Jill Rapley wrote her original baby led weaning book with Tracy Marquette, it was in 2008. And we were essentially in the pre-social media era, right? Facebook was only four years old. Instagram was still two years away. The way that people got information about baby led weaning then looks different than it does now. And despite that, or maybe because of it, I think Jill Rapley's words ring ever so true. And I'm so grateful that she would come on this platform of a podcast, which wasn't even around in 2008, to share her ideas with the next generation of parents who hopefully have read her book, but if they haven't, are still able to get her message. So as I said, we had a lot of conversations going back and forth. I literally have never met or had anyone else as prepared on this podcast for an interview as Jill Rapley. Makes sense. It's a whole podcast literally dedicated to everything she created and invented, but she was super prepared. And in the lead up, I remember her saying a couple of times, like her initial thoughts as a health visitor When she noticed that babies were refusing food, it wasn't the food, it was the feeding that they didn't like. And I know that for so many of us, myself included, when you discover and then become enamored with baby led weaning, you do so because somewhere in your past, or perhaps in real life, you did struggle with traditional spoon feeding, or you had friends who did, or I know for me, it was with my oldest daughter, Molly. It was such a dark period of motherhood for me when she would not eat the food that I was trying to spoon feed to her. And I didn't know what I was doing wrong. So I think Rapley's words of advice in today's episode, we should just take to heart, which is that we can and should respect our babies a lot more than many of us do. She acknowledges that there's a lot of work to be done there. And so I hope that hearing Dr. Rapley's words right from her mouth will inspire you to continue on, or maybe even if you're just getting started to even consider taking a baby-led weaning journey with your baby and your family, because our babies can do so much more than we give them credit for. So thank you, Jill Rapley, for making that so incredibly apparent to us through your tireless efforts to promote the philosophy of baby-led weaning. I know personally, I'm so grateful for Rapley and her work. It's afforded me the opportunity to focus the entirety of my career as a dietitian on her principles and practices, not only to help six of my own seven children succeed with baby-led weaning at home, but now to help tens of thousands of families get a safe start to solid foods using baby-led weaning through my work as a dietitian. And you might be surprised, there's actually very few credentialed professionals in the world of feeding who are dedicated exclusively to baby-led weaning. A lot of people like dabble in it, but certainly in nutrition and dietetics, where the vast majority of my colleagues, they still promote and espouse traditional spoon feeding. And I think that's really unfortunate because so many of them don't yet know about the benefits of self-feeding or the research that supports baby-led weaning as a safe alternative to spoon feeding. So if you guys are interested in learning more about baby-led weaning and how to give your baby a safe start to solid foods with baby-led weaning, I teach a free 
online workshop every week. It's called Baby Led Weaning for Beginners. How to get your baby to try 100 foods before turning one without you having to spoon feed purees or buy pouches. So in 2016, I created the 100 First Foods approach to baby led weaning. I have a whole 100 First Foods list that I give to everyone on this free baby led weaning for beginners workshop. If you want to get signed up for this week's workshop times, you can go to the show notes page for this episode. It's at blwpodcast.com forward slash 102. Come and join the baby led weaning for beginners workshop. Everybody gets a copy of my 100 First Foods list. And I also host a large Q&A at the end of each of the workshops in case you have any baby led weaning questions hanging around. So hope you guys are continuing to learn about baby led weaning. It's so wonderful that we have the opportunity to hear from its founding philosopher, Jill Rapley. Thank you so much for listening to this important episode about the future of baby led weaning with its founding philosopher, Jill Rapley. And if you haven't heard episode number 100, where Rapley talks about the history of baby led weaning, go check that one out as well. you find it hard to sleep at night then the calm cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long calm cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires all of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast calm cove is brought to you by the team behind sleep cove the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis meditation and stories so if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight search for calm cove on apple podcasts or spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night